um, a good bit of the, the history of Christian Zionism uh, from the, the Moravian revival, even pre-Luther's uh, Reformation, up to the time of the Wesleys and uh, the birth of the Restorationist movement in, Israel, in, in the United Kingdom, in England. And uh, this is a very important topic for all of us to know. Uh, David, I'm reading a very good book that I recommend to everyone. It's called A Short History of Christian Zionism. Uh -huh. It's by uh, Dr. Donald M. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And it's a really fascinating book. Uh, Jürgen Bueller, our president, has already read this and uh, has uh, recommended all our leadership read it. And uh, um, we were going to invite Dr. Lewis, uh, based on really this amazing book he's written, probably the most definitive history of Christian Zionism uh, out there. We were going to invite him to Envision in a couple weeks here at our conference in Jerusalem. But uh, um, he just passed away. It's quite a shame. Oh, dear. Uh, but he was a dear man. I remember meeting him a few years ago. But he makes this point very well. I know Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his book, A Place Among the Nations, he notes that Christian Zionism predates Jewish political Zionism by decades, if not a century or more. And, and he makes the case that, uh, of and helps trace it, and I just recommend this, probably the best book now out there on uh, the, the history and the origins of Christian Zionism. But we're gonna get uh, some of the important milestones, key points, key figures from David Elms today, and really ending, uh, or uh, a lot of it focused on the Wesley brothers who really uh, had this tremendous uh, revival and uh, I've even preached, David, in uh, some churches that uh, were birthed out of uh, John Wesley's preaching. They, they, you know, I preached in churches that he preached in in Ireland. It was quite a privilege, and you could still feel the Spirit of God there. I'm telling you, it was quite unusual of all the places I've ministered around the world. But uh, please uh, take your time and... and um, give us a, a good overview of the, the origins and those early centuries of Christian Zionism. Okay, well, thank you, David, and uh, welcome to everyone. And uh, as David has said, I want to, to do some historical research with you. Now, I don't want this to come over as just as dry and dusty and meaningless, because true history is not that way at all. In fact, it's very life-giving. Christians believe, and the old expression is, that history is his story, the story of God, and the story of how God uses people. And I don't know about in your country, but certainly within the UK, people over these past decades have been fascinated by their genealogy. Where do they come from? What were my ancestors like? And so on. Well, we're going to do a little bit about our spiritual ancestors, our great heroes of the faith. And it doesn't start as a complete package in, in, in many ways. Of course, the package is still being unpacked in our day and generation. But I want to begin by saying this, that, you know, God is eternal. God is above time, but God works in time. God is above time, but God works in time. And he works out his plan and his purposes. And history that we're looking at, his story, with a particular aspect on the development of and uh, the kindling of a biblical Zionism or the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, which have been suppressed and covered for centuries. But we're going to talk how up to this present day, it has uh, suddenly started to be revealed again. Now, when I was uh, a boy, which is a very long time ago now, <laughs> but we used to pride ourselves on being able to say the longest word in the English language. And that word was this, anti-disestablishmentarianism. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. Now, I don't know whether it's still the longest word in the English language, but of course, uh, it was great when you, amongst your peers, you, you could remember the longest word in the English language. It was even better, of course, if you could spell it. 
The one thing we never did was, of course, discuss its meaning. <laughs> it was meaningless to us. It was just simply the longest word in the English language. And yet this uh, disestablishmentarianism actually begins my talk with you today because it is about the separation between the church and the state. <clears throat> and so I'm going to pick, and I could have picked other dates, but I want to pick October the 31st in 1517 as the starting date in Germany. <clears throat> and at that time, the church and the state uh, were together. They were combined. And it was the all-powerful Holy Roman Empire. And church and state controlled absolutely everything. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't even be buried unless you had permission from the uh, Holy Roman Empire or its representatives. And actually, this uh, empire lasted from uh, about 800, AD 800, up until 1861, which actually is 10 centuries. So that's a long, long time for the church and the state to be combined together. And they covered all of Europe. And this is where it is important for us to get our heads around this. And of course, this uh, Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century, they believed that the Catholic Church was the true church. They believed that the Catholic Church was the true Israel of God. In other words, it promoted replacement theology. They had no room uh, for Israel as, as a nation, didn't see any room for it. Now, the first character that we begin with in 1517 was actually an Augustinian monk, and his name was Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther started out and he wanted reform. He wanted reform. He didn't want separation. He just wanted reform within the Catholic Church. And it certainly was not about Israel at this time, but he began to see the corrupt practices that were taking place within the Catholic Church that were being endorsed all the way up to Rome. And so, and this was the custom in those days, he nailed what is called the 95 Theses or Theses that were nailed. It's quite common, this actually it wasn't unique to Luther, but his were at this time. These 95 Theses or points for debate uh, regarding reform of the Catholic Church. And he nailed it to the cathedral uh, church door at Wittenberg in the district of Saxony in Germany. Now, Luther's reforms were completely rejected by the Catholic authorities. And not only that, Luther was forced out of the Catholic Church. And that was just the start of things. Yet, because God is in control of history, the greatest change in Western Christianity had begun at this time. And soon this whole process, this whole movement was called the Reformation. And this was the disestablishment of the Catholic Church from Europe. This was the breakup, start of the breakup of the Holy Roman, so-called Holy Roman Empire. As one theologian said, it was neither holy nor Roman. But that's another story for, a, for another day. That's, the, that's how history records it. So and it wasn't just a question of uh, Luther being uh, thrown out of the church. Sadly, this whole uh, event ended um, or led to horrific wars, terrible wars between Catholics and Protestants, because political powers got involved, and it moved certainly from the realm of just being theological discussion, enlightenment or debate, and until a real battle for power, church and state, they didn't want to lose their power, and others didn't want them to have the power. But just going back to Luther's spiritual beliefs, there were five key beliefs that he had. <clears throat> And, uh, and I hope you believe in these today. And these five beliefs are called the five solas, S-O-L-A-S, and that's Latin for alone, it means alone. And these five solas were quite simple. It was faith alone, and what he meant was faith alone saves you. Grace alone, it was grace from God alone that saved you. Christ alone, who saved you and the glory to God was to be given alone. It was not to be given 
to the church. It was to be given to Christ. And the last one was scripture alone. And this is very important for our study. They're all important and they should all still be part of your basic belief. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone and scripture alone. But for us, the focus is on scripture because what happened after uh, when the Reformation took place, the next thing was that the scripture became available in the vernacular. That means the mother tongue. And soon translations of the scripture came out. People were reading the Bible for themselves. They were no longer being told by the Catholic priest what the scripture says or what they, uh, uh, they believe they should say. No, now ordinary people were able to read and see the truth contained in uh, the Bible. And this great uh, consequence was incredible because people began to read things that they'd never been told. And certainly from our aspect as well, we begin to see people began to read about Israel, that God hadn't finished with Israel. But that's a little bit further down the, uh, the pathway, so I'll come to that a little bit later. But essentially, no longer did Christians accept the prime authority of the Catholic Church. They believed that the Bible was the final authority. And so Lutheranism, it spread like wildfire. It, it was the perfect time uh, for this to happen. And it gained the powerful political support, which I've spoken about. And soon its followers were called Protestants. And essentially that's anyone who is a non-Catholic believer. They were called Protestants. Now, towards the end of his life, and it is very sad this, and I'm not going to dwell on it because that's not the point of this talk. Uh, Luther became anti-Semitic. At this time, he wasn't. He believed that the Jews were going to receive everything that the Reformation was offering. Uh, but there were other fine uh, Christian men. Uh, for instance, in Switzerland, there was a man called Ulrich Zwingli, and uh, he brought the Reformation over to Switzerland. And a little later, uh, John Calvin emerged. Calvin was an amazing theologian from France. And uh, he ended up ruling uh, Geneva as a model Christian city. And in fact, uh, at, at this time as well, as uh, the time of uh, Calvin, Scottish and English Protestants went over and they were the people who became known as Puritans. And so basically all of Europe now, all of Europe was in turmoil. All of Europe was being beset by either Reformation or traditional Catholicism. And I want to go back to this uh, point I made a little bit earlier, and you'll see how this fits in shortly. One of the most brutal wars that was fought between the Catholics and the Protestants was called the Thirty Years' War. And that lasted from 1618 until 1648. And if you read any report of it, it just decimated villages and people. The uh, body count was horrific and proportionally, uh, proportionately it was uh, as bad as any war that's ever been. And one of the things that happened was there were thousands of Protestant Moravian refugees now, for those who don't know, that's, that's just linked into the Czech Republic, Moravia and Bohemia. And the, the, these people were so attacked and so destroyed, they were driven as refugees uh, out of their lands and out of their home. But they were faithful people and they believed God. And I want you to keep this in mind because we go back to Lutheranism. It, it began to spread throughout mainly Northern Europe and into Scandinavia. And as this happened and it got established and so on, but because of the political links and so on, it soon became rather rigid and it became rigid in its doctrine, in its practice. And as um, Calvin and Calvinism developed and as Puritanism developed, it became a great emphasis on doctrine, great emphasis on the head and on knowledge it was a religion of the head. It was a religion of the head. 
And as a result, and we're just going forward in time, approximately about 100 years, uh, by the year 1675, um, long after Luther's death, there was a, Lu uh, a Lutheran leader by the name of Philip Jacob Spainer. Now, Spainer uh, was a holy man. He was a good man. And he wanted the reform of the Lutheran church, just as Luther wanted the reform of the Catholic church. Now, Spainer was saying, we need reform in our church. It's become dusty and dry and there's no anointing. And he wrote a book, and this book was called Pia Desideria, which translated from its Latin title is Holy Desires, Holy Desires. And essentially this book was all about uh, the doctrine of sanctification or holiness. And it's put in such a way that we would now call it a second blessing, like a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This book, Holy Desires, it called for a daily examination of the heart by each individual. It called for repentance as God showed you things. It called for daily prayer and uh, it called for daily reading of the Bible. It said that communion should take place regularly and that as a result of your faith, kind deeds should take place. Now, of course you might, oh, and one other important thing, very important thing, he said that this, uh, th th these things should be manifest in house meetings, in home meetings. Now, of course, for us today, I hope that you do meet in your homes, your cell groups or whatever title we want to go by. But this was radical because for all the churches, you know, individuals meeting or little groups meeting in their homes was very dangerous. They could have been seen as people who were seditious and wanted to break the norm. But that was not the motive of Spainer. He wanted to remain within the Lutheran church, and he did, and just bring this reform. Incredibly, um, this book became a bestseller. David was advertising a book before on Christian Zionism. Now, would you think a, a book on holy desires would be uh, very popular today? Well, <laughs> it certainly was at this time. And in fact, the full title of Pia Desideria goes on to say, a heartfelt desire for a God-pleasing reform of the evangelical church. Let me read that again. A heartfelt desire for a godly-pleasing reform of the evangelical church. Now, isn't that up to date? <laughs> Aren't you praying for that? Certainly I'm praying for that within the United Kingdom. And I hope that you're praying for that in your country. <clears throat> And actually, this book is still available today, and it was translated into many languages, just as the Bible had been. So what does this tell us? Well, for me in history, which is his story, it's showing again that the people of God, uh, there was a, a man called David Duplessis, who was a great leader of the charismatic movement. And he wrote a, a book, which, uh, or a chapter in his book, which I remember where he said, God has got no grandchildren, God has only got children. And each generation has to find God uh, for itself. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Spainer's book, uh, by the time of his death, which was in 1705, <clears throat> the book had started this whole movement within the Protestant world. And this uh, movement became known as pietism. And especially in Germany and in Denmark, pietism is still uh, a major a feature. And I mentioned before how within Lutheranism and Calvinism, uh, Puritanism as well, Cal they, these all emphasized what God had done for people. Absolutely correct, of course. And we thank God for what he'd done, those five solas and so on. But pietism emphasized what God does in people. God does things for people, but God does things in people. And out of this, and you may be thinking, what, what has this got to do with me? What has this got to do with uh, Israel and so on? But to be honest, it's got everything to do with it. Because all Pentecostals, all Evangelicals, Baptists, you will find that you've got either Pietist or Puritan heritage, or you've got even a mixture. The foundations of Evangelical and Protestant belief are in a religion of the head and a religion of the heart 
and particularly the religion of the heart is the key not totally not totally but where we find people are op open up to what god wants to do in and for israel and this religion of the heart this sanctification this second blessing is very important and again for anyone who's listening if you've never had a second blessing then you know it's still available i don't want to give you just a history lesson i want to give you something that's dynamic and life-giving and is relevant for today anyway we move on a little bit and one lutheran is a lutheran believer who embraced pietism <clears throat> from his youth onwards was a man called count nicholas zinzendorf and uh zinzendorf grew up in a um in a home that was full of believers in fact his father was a great friend of spainer and so he grew up zinzendorf believing and practicing the religion of the heart pietism anyway as time went by in 1721 after the death of his father uh, zinzendorf inherited land and the lands were about 70 miles east of dresden in germany and again in this district uh, called Saxony. And uh, around the same time uh, as all of this was happening, we still uh, find that we've got this 30 years war taking place. And the Czech uh, Protestants had suffered greatly. And many of the now pietistic Moravians were left as refugees. And what did they do? Well, they sought uh, asylum in Saxony where their beliefs were allowed. And so many of them flooded in. And how interesting when we look at the state of the world today and we see uh, refugees, and I don't know whether you are aware of the situation in Liverpool, what you've seen, but that's another story. But I know that there, this man was taken in by actually Christian people who, who I know. Anyway, um, these Moravians, they came into uh, Saxony and they, they were just lost. They didn't know what to do. But a number of them found Zinzendorf and they asked him, could he let them stay on their land? Now, of course, one of the objectives of pietism was to do good works. And certainly Zinzendorf was not just a Christian in, uh, in name, but he was indeed. And he told them, yes, you can stay. And he allowed them to build a small village called Hernhut. Hernhut, H-E-R-N-H-U-T. Uh, and that translated, German, that translated means the Lord's watch. And a very important word that, the watch, the prayer watch. Because these people were great prayers. And when they arrived, and their holy living made such an impact on Zinzendorf that he not only got involved with them, but he joined them. And by 1727, just a few years later, they asked him if he would be their leader. And so in this place, Zinzendorf with the Moravians and the uh, pietistic belief, this wonderful place of God began. <clears throat> And in August of that year, 1727, on August the 13th, to be exact, uh, they held a communion service, which was quite a feature of the, of the belief, and the prayer, the self-examination, and so on. And they had this meeting, and it started just uh, a good meeting, a blessed meeting, a holy meeting. But suddenly, the Pentecostal power from the heavens just fell upon it. It was amazing. It was so transformative. It really was another Pentecost. I love that song. It says, we need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. Now, this place in Europe was so significant for a revival that was going to sweep the world. And I would argue the results of it have even touched your country, wherever you are, because these people were seekers of heart holiness and they came away from there absolutely ablaze with the spirit 
and particularly two legacies come out of Hernhut. There began the world's longest recorded prayer meeting of 100 years. Well, that's a long prayer meeting, isn't it? And uh, we've begun some good prayer meetings within ICEJ. I wonder if they'll still be around in 100 years if the Lord has not uh, returned. But these meetings were 24-7. And uh, it's, it's recorded in history because it was so amazing. And, and not only that, we come to the second legacy. It started the major, major worldwide Protestant mission. And this came from Hernhut. <clears throat> And essentially their message was, get your heart right and we're going to tell you about it and we're going to go wherever. Now we have a, a wonderful brother in our uh, ICJ uh, circuit in London, Jonathan Croft, who is a, uh, a pastor in London. <clears throat> and uh, Jonathan has been uh, over to Hernhut and in fact, he was telling me some of his friends actually ran it for a while, still functional. Um, over there and uh, he was telling me that when you look at the gravestones uh, in the graveyard that is adjacent to the to the prayer center it has the name of the person who's died and the country where they went as missionaries you couldn't join this group unless you were determined to allow God to send you wherever you wanted and the missionary outreach of the Moravians was way out of all proportion to their numbers. They were, you know, comparatively very small numbers. But once they'd had this Pentecostal anointing, they just went out throughout all the world. And one of their early destinations was to travel to this fledgling country, which uh, was known by the name of America. <laughs> and here these Moravians, they set out to this land, which uh, was uh, a British colony, or certainly the part that they were going to. Um, so th they, they set sail. And uh, it is recorded for us that the, the group, they had 26 uh, Moravians, that included the children, who were going to Georgia in America. And they set sail in October 1735. It was a terrible journey. It was a frightening journey. And of course, the ships and everything then, you know, were very risky. And most of the passengers thought that they would drown. The storms were so severe. Yet these Moravians, they just still stood on the deck and they gathered in their group daily, just as was their practice. And they held meetings and they prayed and they sang. And that is what they did day after day. Now, amongst the other travelers was a man by the name of John Wesley, who was to become the founder of Methodism. And Wesley has actually been sent out as a, as a pastor, as a minister uh, missionary uh, by the Church of England uh, to Georgia, because he grew up, him and his brother Charles, uh, within the Church of England which, as I said, was uh, Georgia was a British colony. Wesley was quite despondent because he saw these Moravians and he saw their faith. It just so challenged him because he'd grown up, he knew his Bible, he was an amazing scholar, uh, and they'd done some very good work when they were uh, students and, and all the rest of it. Um, but he just did not have the faith of these Moravians, and it so, it so depressed him. And eventually, of course, they did land. Um, but before that, there was one other thing I need to point out to you. <clears throat> that Wesley had been sent over by the British authorities, to give it its correct name, the London Trustees, <clears throat> for another reason. They were getting very worried because into Georgia uh, had um, sailed many Jews. And it was becoming a Jewish colony at least that's how the British interpreted it and sadly of course they were uh, well not of course but they were anti-Semitic they wanted this to be a British colony but these Jews um, were increasing in number who were sailing out there and so Wesley was told not only was he going there as a missionary but he had to reach out 
to this Jewish uh, colony. Now, in 1733 to 1740, the Jewish immigration in Europe was fierce, uh, particularly from the Catholic point of view in Portugal and Spain. And the Jews, they had to uh, take on, a lot of them pretended to have converted to Catholicism. And their name was uh, Maronos, which I believe means uh, swine or a pig. Um, and they knew that it was getting very difficult for them. And uh, even before this time as well, Columbus was regarded as uh, a secret Jew and uh, a Maronos. But anyway, these people between 33, 1733 and 40, they came into Georgia. And they, uh, a particular group just arrived about two years before Wesley. And when they'd arrived uh, with this other main group, the British group of people, an outbreak of yellow fever occurred. And over 114 colonists died. And amongst the first one who died, was the only doctor, a man by the name of William Cox. And so um, here they were with this outbreak of this terrible fever with in those days, no known cure. Sounds again, very similar to our situation today. <clears throat> but amongst the Jewish arrivals have been a man by the name, or he came to be known as Robert Nunes. Now, um, he had been a physician to the King of Portugal. So he was in the highest uh, place, uh, medically speaking, but they discovered that he was actually um, a Jew and he kept it hidden and he had to flee for his life. And he came to England and he brought his family and he met up with other secret Jews and that's how they came over. Now, it is an amazing story, uh, Robert Nunes' story, and I haven't got time to go into into that uh, at all, really. But I just want you to remember that there was this Jewish colony and this uh, great doctor, Nunes, and he was so highly qualified. Uh, his fame really spread, and he helped end the epidemic, and he drew on uh, natural resources that he found, and he was an incredible innovator, and so on. So by the time Wesley arrived, just a few years later, they were talking about uh, this wonderful and gifted man. And Wesley was also a man of many talents, and he was very interested in science. And he believed that medically, he wanted it, to use it to help the poor and the needy. Um, always been interested in that sort of thing. So he soon struck up a friendship with Nunes, and um, a great link was established between Wesley and the Jewish community. And in fact, and John Wesley wrote many journals. I don't know whether any of you are diary keepers, but I don't think you compete with either John or Charles. Every day, they're very comprehensive, all their diaries and accounts of what is going on. And on April the 14th, uh, the 4th, actually, uh, 1737, Wesley wrote in one of his journals, I began learning Spanish in order to converse with my Jewish parishioners, some of whom seem nearer my mind that was in Christ than many who call him Lord. Now, that was quite incredible. He began learning Spanish. Well, you know, uh, Wesley also learned German so that he could speak with the Moravians. Incredible man. But John was there uh, as a priest, and also his brother Charles was there as well. And Charles uh, was to become the greatest hymn writer that England has ever produced. And he also was deeply impressed with the Jewish community. And as he read the Bible, as he studied it, it left a deep impression on him, which I'll come to a little bit later. <clears throat> but in spite of this seeming a positive uh, outlook on things, in fact, the tour was a disaster for the Wesleys, uh, for all sorts of reasons. And again, I haven't got time to go into, but they returned to uh, the UK uh, absolutely forlorn. They both felt that they were absolute failures and that uh, God was not going to use them and that they'd let God down. And so by 1738, uh, both brothers in the early part of 1738 were both back in London. 
And when they got back into London and they got settled in, they weren't sure what way to go. They linked in with the group of Moravians because Moravian missionaries had also come into the UK. They were in London and particularly a man, the leader was a man called Peter Bowler and um, a very godly man, a very knowledgeable man. And the Wesley brothers spoke much to him. On May the 21st, a few months later in 1738, Charles was quite ill. He was ill in bed and in fact, you know, he thought he was going to die. But suddenly he had an amazing healing and what I would call a, a baptism in the spirit or a second blessing. And he recorded it as his conversion. And suddenly now he had a new power in his life, a new purpose, a new hope because he just felt uh, so despondent after the failure of the um, Georgia American uh, fiasco. <clears throat> now that same evening, his brother John, who wasn't ill, he went to uh, a meeting, a Moravian meeting. And in the meeting, uh, they were reading of, uh, they were reading from Luther's, remember Luther at the very start of my talk, Luther had wrote a preface to the epistle to the Romans. And they hadn't even got into the study of it, but uh, suddenly, like his brother, John Wesley, and he even wrote the time down. So it's 8.45 p.m. <laughs> and it's 17.38. That suddenly now, he said, the power of God came into his life. In fact, what he wrote in his journals uh, was this. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin, even mine. Now, just go back to the first part of that, what I read. I felt my heart, what? Strangely warmed. You see, the religion of the heart, a new heart. What does it say in Ezekiel? I put a new heart within them. This was the emphasis, this was the, the pietism. This was the entrance into a second blessing, to have your heart clean and right and open to God. Now, within three, three weeks later, uh, Wesley had traveled over to Hernhut, to this uh, meeting place. And there he met with Count uh, uh, Zinzendorf. And as he met uh, with Zinzendorf, and there was an occasion as well, where, where they held dialogue and they actually spoke in Latin. <laughs> so Wesley was speaking in, in Spanish and we've got great translators here and we appreciate all that you do. But here, here was Wesley speaking in Spanish to speak to the Jewish people. He was speaking in Latin to speak to scholars and uh, people like Zinzendorf and he learned German and obviously English was his native language. But he picked these up in a very short space of time. <clears throat> Anyway, after this meeting with Zinzendorf, Wesley came back uh, to the UK. And he came back, and like his brother, he was a completely changed man. And he was destined to be the most unlikely, but the greatest evangelist that the United Kingdom has ever known. And Wesley was not allowed to, he was ordained, he could preach in churches, but wherever he went, they didn't allow him to speak in churches, because when he spoke, hundreds of people came to listen to him, and they didn't want the riffraff going to church. <laughs> they didn't want their nice uh, church building spoiled by uh, just the ordinary folk coming in, and in those days, of course, uneducated and not well washed, and so on and so on. But Wesley had learned he didn't want to do it at first but he went into the fields and preached and miraculously thousands and thousands of poor uneducated people listened to him and they received a new heart under his ministry and under the ministry of his brother Charles never had such a quiet and he was quite a remote man he could be difficult at times uh, don't think he was just a sort of permanent saint. No, John had his failings, 
And this is the great thing about it. It gives us all hope, doesn't it? We've all got feet of clay. But John was a highly educated and he just said, God, if this is what you've got for me, I, I will preach to the masses. He preached to the crowds right across the British Isles. Uh, he just went and he traveled. And as he traveled as well, he was often beaten up. Riots took place. Uh, many of the landed gentry said that he wanted to start a revolution just as was taking place in France at this time. Uh, so it, it, it was a, a terrible time for him. But John didn't stop. He was like Paul. He set his face like Flint and he ran the race. He was, he was a wonderful man. And he actually preached over 20,000 sermons. Many of those are still recorded. Now just think of that figure for a moment. You know that you think of your preacher, maybe you're a preacher. How many sermons do you preach a week? And how long would it take you to preach 20,000 sermons? And you know, some of Wesley's sermons are still available and still read. Uh, they're not the full message, they are abbreviated, but they're still very uh, powerful. Now, in a, a similar way, Charles, and Charles is often downplayed, but he was a, an amazing man of faith, an amazing man of God. And um, he, um, he was very gifted as a poet, and he wrote over 6,500 hymns. And again, just consider that figure, 6,500 hymns. Now, most songwriters, you know, how many did they get away with, even the best that you know of? <laughs> and maybe you say, yes, but a lot of those hymns, surely they were just rather uh, uh, pathetic. Well, uh, no, they weren't. And we still sing them today. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's love? Hark the herald angels sing. And I could go on <laughs> and I could read out to you 6, 000, uh, some of the 6,500 and you would say, I know that, I know that, and soldiers of Christ arise and put your armor on. Every one of the hymns, and this was amazing, and this is what the scholars noted, they were all built around biblical verses. And the pietism, you see, it brought the Bible alive. And as they read the Bible, they uh, recorded hymns about it. And, and this is where, at long last, you may be thinking, we get into it. it they wrote hymns regarding Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, redeem thy people, Israel. And uh, there's a lovely one, which, and sadly today, the Methodists, and Wesley, you remember, founded Methodism, but you'll find that they've got rid of so many of these hymns regarding Israel directly, and particularly the most famous one, which I'll talk about in a moment. But there was uh, another lovely one, which is, uh, none is like Jeshurun's God, now, do you know where it speaks about Jeshurun's God? <laughs> and this is speaking about Israel, Jeshurun. It says, none is like Jeshurun's God, so great, so strong, so high. Israel, his firstborn son, God, the eternal God, is thine. <laughs> and so the verses go on. And by the way, Wesley didn't write uh, three verses. <laughs> that, was, that was not Charles Wesley. No, no. And John also actually wrote hymns. He actually translated some of Zinzendorf's hymns and some of the hymns of the Moravians. But most important for us and foundational for what was to follow, uh, Charles Wesley wrote uh, what is known as the Zionist hymn. And this was based on Isaiah uh, 66 and verse 19 and also in Romans 11 and verse 26. And the hymn, and sadly this has been left out, the uh, present-day Methodist hymnals has been for years. And the hymn is called Almighty God of Love. And again, there's a number of verses in it. I'll just read one, which gives you a flavor of where the Wesleys were coming from after this encounter with the Holy Spirit, after their Pentecostal experience. The verse says this, We know it must be done, for God has spoke the word. All Israel shall their Saviour own, to their first state restored. Rebuilt by his command, Jerusalem shall rise, her temple on Moriah stand again, and touch the skies. Well, 
if somebody produced those words, maybe with a little bit more modern English today, you would just say, yeah, that guy, that guy or that girl is a Christian Zionist. This was written in the 18th century, but they saw what God was going to do. So from reading scripture alone, from meeting that Jewish community over in America, and from their personal Pentecost, there came a new anointing upon their preaching. <clears throat> and in the words of a leading Wesleyan scholar and theologian, actually used to be my professor, uh, Herbert McGonagall, he wrote this, <clears throat> the hymn, Almighty God of Love, can be said to represent the views of both John and Charles Wesley. It is well worth studying relative to how the Wesleys read scripture in terms of Israel's future in God's plan. Israel's future in God's plan. Well, over the following centuries, these and other uh, Wesley and Methodist hymn, early Methodist hymns, uh, prepared the hearts of the people. They were singing these, and they prepared the hearts of the people to love uh, uh, the Jewish people and to see uh, the biblical truth and the prophecy regarding Israel. But I want to close by saying this, that along with uh, the Wesleys, they had another great friend who'd been uh, with them from their time uh, at university, at uh, uh, in their university days. And this man was uh, a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a little um, younger, so it was the Wesleys who, who took more uh, the lead. And, and Whitfield, he started the great Methodist revival, but where did he really take off? And it was in America. <laughs> and so where the Wesleys had failed in America, Whitfield, and to get, they worked together at the start of their ministry. Uh, sadly, in one sense, although they remained uh, good friends right to the end, and John Wesley actually preached at the funeral of George Whitfield, but George Whitfield was more Puritan, more a uh, believer of the head than uh, the Wesleys with their emphasis on the heart. But Whitfield, as they worked together in the UK, and then Whitfield went over, and from, uh, from the UK, Whitfield uh, carried this great awakening anointing uh, to the American colonies. He worked there at the, along with uh, Jonathan Edwards, who I'm sure you've heard of. And then from 1770, the revival spread to Canada. And so this kindling flame from the persecution of the Moravians in and then the uh, res residing in Hernhut, the Lord's Watch, it's left thousands and thousands and thousands ablaze. The missionary endeavors uh, from off the Moravians, then from America, has gone forth into all the other ends of the world. And it lays the foundation, it laid the foundation for Pentecostalism, for second blessing, for entire sanctification. So this a uh, kindling flame that had started, it left thousands on fire with the Spirit, ablaze with the Spirit, foundation for the growth of biblical Zionism and preparing people morally and spiritually for the experience of a second blessing and having a clean heart, right with God and right with man. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, David. It was uh, just excellent. And uh, I tell you, I, I give, uh, <laughs> I say, I try to give lectures like this on, you know, the origins of Christian Zionism there in Central Europe uh, from the Moravian revival forward and, you know, hit some of these high points. But uh, your scholarship is excellent, your presentation. We got good responses from people and uh, your delivery. We just uh, have been uh, really treated to a very good presentation on all this today. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. And, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, um, I, you know, I picked up so many good points from you. One thing I'd like to add to your lecture that uh, 
the colony of Georgia. I think it, it started out as a penal colony, <laughs> if you know that, before Australia, before they sent all the bad guys to Australia, they sent them to Georgia because it was on the sort of the edge there with uh, the Spanish were in Florida, it was swampy and wilderness and very hot and all, and uh, so they were sending them. But that's interesting that, that many Jews started selling there. They were in the Caribbean. Many, when they got kicked out of Spain, the expulsion, even on, on uh, Columbus's ship, there were Jews on it, in his crew and all. And so among the Spanish uh, expansion in the Caribbean and Central and South America, uh, there were a lot of Jews there. And I bet they came up from the Caribbean there to the um, uh, Georgia. And that's quite interesting. So uh, very good. Uh, I want to ask a couple questions. I'm sure we're going to get some more uh, questions here. But uh, first of all, you know, the Moravian revival, most people don't know that, you know, it really predates Luther and the Protestant Reformation by several decades. And they were the ones who really discovered the, the born again experience started reading scripture and understanding there was a place still for Israel and, and God's uh, redemptive uh, destiny and future. And, and um, uh, you know, th that's the real origins of not only Christian Zionism, but the whole evangelical movement starts there. And I think that's an important point. And I think what you brought out here is very good. You talk about the the 30 years war had producing a lot of refugees from there. And I always, uh, my sense was that Moravia is this province on the frontier between Catholic Europe and, and the Orthodox uh, churches of Eastern Europe. So you had some free churches. The first free churches of Europe were birthed because neither Catholicism or the uh, Orthodox churches like in Poland or Russia were predominant there. That allowed these churches a little freedom. But uh, anything to say on that? And I mean, exactly uh, what was the conflict there that forced them out to Germany where they found protection under Count Zinzendorf? Uh, well, a, a couple of points from that, David. Uh, first of all, uh, yeah, uh, John Huss, uh, there, there were a lot of um, believers before Luther. And I think, you know, people need to realize that. Yes. I just used him uh, as the most obvious uh, figurehead. Um, and God has never stopped working. And there's always been believers and those who understand the Jewish roots of the Christian faith as well. It was just sadly uh, suppressed. But in regards to the Moravians, yeah, it, it was direct. Um, religious war between catholics and protestants mm -hmm. and still of course we we still have this spill over today a lot of people even in the united kingdom i live in liverpool now that was when i was a boy still a very divided city like glasgow and like belfast uh where the there were divided communities catholics and protestants and uh, although we didn't see any uh, real violence there was no love no love lost but if we go back to the centuries in which we're talking about, these villages were decimated and they've become uh, Protestant, for want of a better word. Uh, but then the Catholic um, warriors, they, they regained the territory. And of course, they were showing no mercy uh, in war. So, yes, there was definitely a background before Luther. And yes, this is direct religious war between Catholic and Protestant. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, um, you know, I preached in Tanzania in Moravian churches that, that are huge. They have thousands of members that are on fire for God, and they're, they're bigger Moravian congregations and more on fire than you'll find anywhere else in the world. Those, those um, uh, you know, Moravian missionaries, they really were the ones who first went to Africa or anywhere caring for what they considered savages in those days, caring for their souls. So that's an, another important point to remember. And second, you've drawn a good link here between uh, the Moravians 
and and the Wesleys. And I know I've run into uh, others who, you know, start citing scholarship about the Wesleys and question, what do you mean they're Zionists or, or whatever, including some from England. Of course, they're very proud of the Wesleys being being British stock and, and all. But, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's very important what you've established here. I mean, you we all can cite, well, they wrote hymns and whatever, but you've given us real details. I think these notes, if you have notes, we want to publish them. If you're willing, you can send them to me and we'll put them out there up on our website and through the email. And, uh, you know, this is, this is very good scholarship. What I, you've probably run into these debates as well. Is there, I mean, you are absolutely, uh, convinced i mean what arguments does the other side make that the wesleys weren't you know before the restoration of the jews to the land and uh and and how you know how do you refute it well i suppose i'm in a good position because early on in my academic studies um i i didn't fully appreciate the depth of relationship that the wesleys had uh, to uh, Israel and um, biblical interpretation. And uh, it was, I was coming from the position, not of a, uh, somebody who, who dismissed it, but I'd, I come on the basis of them as great revivalists and understanding how they changed the, the history of, of our, our country and so on. And so, as I mentioned before, the people that I studied under as well, they were bringing it out. And we wouldn't even particularly think that some of my uh, uh, tutors as well, that they, they were biblical Zionists, but they couldn't deny it. <laughs> and mm. there's a, a brilliant scholar called Henry uh, Rack, uh, and he's still alive, actually, an old man now. But they bring out all these facts of that, that, are, that are not disputable because Wesley had left so many writings behind. Because in the hymns, you can just see see their views on Israel, like the one that I quoted before. So the people who say it today, they come from the, the view, and this is the important bit, I think, David, from if I'm understanding your question correctly. Present-day Methodists, certainly in the United Kingdom, are a million miles from Wesleyan Methodists, a million miles away their theology and everything. And they're the people who've taken out of the Wesleyan hymn book all of the Wesleyan hymns that related to Israel. It's these liberal scholars today who have denied it. And again, they would bring up all the present day arguments of cessationists and also replacement people to say why Israel shouldn't exist. Um, and again, it'd be another lecture if we started saying why they are wrong or take us yeah. a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worldly compromise and wanting to please men rather than God uh, in, in the direction of so many churches today. And um, I know that, um, you know, some of our Jewish friends, they talk about a distinction be said, let's say, of, uh, between philo-Semitism and Zionism, uh, that some Christians can be Zionists, restore the Jews to Israel, but they're, I wouldn't say anti-Semitic, but they're anti-Judaism. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, I think in those days, would you say the Wesleys were philo-Semitic and Zionists? They both, they were friendly to the Jewish people where they were and not just wanting them all to move to Israel. Well, certainly before they went to America, we've got no known records. Uh, of course, there were a few Jews in uh, the United Kingdom. They, you know, had been expelled even though they were yes. being allowed back in and smaller measure. But I do think going to the American colonies and uh, to Georgia, and uh, meeting with that Jewish community and seeing their faith and hearing their story. Because again, I want to emphasize to folk, you know, it's a wonderful story of Robert Nunes and well worth, uh, you know, either you or somebody giving a talk uh, on it. Um, and I think that left such a mark on the Wesleys, plus the intense and godly reading of scripture and inspiration. They were just raised up for, for such a time as this, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. All right. Very good. I don't know. We've got a question here uh, that's been posed about Martin Luther. Why did he become anti-Semitic? How did he influence his, Hitler? I, it's it's related to our, our topic here. I don't know if you want to address that. Well, in a nutshell, and again, all of these things are, are very complicated, but essentially early on in his ministry, Martin Luther expected the Jews to be like all all the Protestants who were coming, you know, mm -hmm. they would love the five souls, they would see the truth of it, they yeah. would accept that Jesus was the Messiah, and so on. But he had no appreciation of how much hardship and trials that the Jewish community throughout Europe had suffered, how they'd been expelled. They had no love towards any Christians, certainly not uh, towards Catholicism, or as they would see it, a new movement of Catholicism called Lutheranism. So uh, as time went by and he got uh, a very negative response from Jewish people, he himself went into what I would say definitely was the flesh. Instead of staying in the spirit, he started to react and essentially was losing his temper. And then he became very bitter. And unfortunately, uh, instead of just backing off, and leaving it and even repenting. No, he wrote some dreadful things and said some dreadful things. And really that just left a legacy, which really, um, it just, it's it so besmirched Luther's legacy for us. You know, that today within Christian Zionist circles, people don't even like to talk about Luther. And that's sad because of course, I argue as I've done in this, you know, that I believe he was foundational um, for the very thing which he was speaking against, i.e. the Jews uh, at the end of his life. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, there's actually a parallel. Uh, I guess I need to be careful in this uh, comparison, but uh, Mohammed had the same thing, that he had some revelation from Allah. He had befriended the, the Jews in the Arabian Peninsula and then went to him with this revelation and uh, they rejected it, so he rejected them later in, in his uh, career, let's say. And, and Martin Luther had this revelation from God, went to the Jewish community who he had been engaging with in order to help translate the Bible from the Hebrew. And he had uh, Jewish friends and scholars that he was engaging with. But when they wouldn't uh, you know, accept his revelations from God, he turned on them late in life and wrote, uh, uh, on the Jews and their lies, and of course, the Hitler and the Nazis uh, exploited that. They even cited it at the Nuremberg trials and this and that. The, the, many of the things that the Nazis did in their racial laws, burning Jewish books and all, this was all advocated by by Luther himself in writing. So uh, that was, uh, you know, a sad ending to his life and, and ministry. Um, but we just uh, thank you for this time. We're going to have to pick up from, from the Wesleys and come forward somehow with the, this material, but very, very important, very important. And uh, just appreciate everyone who's joined us today. I know we've had good responses. Tell your friends. We're going to put this up on YouTube and, uh, and Vimeo and Facebook. You can go and watch it there later. Tell people to come on and watch this. I think it's been excellent material. And David, if you'll send me your notes, we'll we'll put it up uh, online. Okay, right, we'll get it out there through email and on our website. All right. Just want to let everyone know that uh, we'll be back again this time next week with another webinar. Next Thursday on Wednesday, the day before, we have our global prayer gathering. Uh, we're going to have an ad in just a minute on uh, a little uh, promo video on our upcoming Envision conference. It's going to be full of, uh, I think, we, uh, David, we're going to have a lot of material on, on Zionism, the restoration of Israel, that at this time when there's so much uncertainty and darkness because of corona pandemic and all these things, I tell you, the restoration of Israel is still a firm anchor and landmark of the prophetic times we live in. And, and preaching this message and finding assurance from God that he's still with us in the restoration of Israel. Uh, I think it's very important for us to, to keep that assurance in our hearts. And uh, 
that'll be a big part of uh, the Envision conference this year. And I uh, also want to let everyone know uh, we are have been asked by the Israeli government and the Jewish agency to really help with uh, plans for uh, an airlift of the Ethiopian Jewish community, the last remnant out of Ethiopia. And so we'll be sending out materials on that, how you can help uh, essentially rescue uh, the Ethiopian Jews that are left there from this uh, expanding, this escalating civil war there. And the, the there's drought and famine conditions that are worsening. And we really need to spring into action as Christians and help with this. So thank you for joining us. God bless you from Jerusalem. God bless you in Liverpool, David. Uh, go Reds. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all the best to everyone. Shalom from Jerusalem. Shalom. We are definitely in a time of dramatic change. Many leaders, they speak that this current crisis that is going all around the world means like a reset or a recalibration even of the Word of God here in this world. It's a new season where we do sense new tools are required and a new type of leadership. And in this challenging time, it's important for us to remember that God is not locked down. He is still active. He's not restricted in his ways of dealing with the church, but he can bring new things to your ministry and new things even to your personal leadership. We see prayer increasing around the world and hear testimonies of people coming in large numbers into the kingdom of God. I do pray that this year's Envision Conference right here from Jerusalem will inspire you to be a better leader, to cope with challenges that we are facing, and to expect great things from God for your ministry. I look forward to seeing you at Envision 2022, and I believe that the Lord will give us guidance. Discover, grow, and lead at the Envision Pastors and Leaders Conference. Join us as we take you to different locations in the land of Israel. Hear insightful teachings that will enrich your faith. Enjoy worship and fellowship together with pastors and leaders from across the globe. Register today. Go to on.icej.org slash envision2022.